This is a LifeGate Church podcast. Tune in to hear from our team as we encourage you to discover the freedom and purpose that Jesus offers. If you want to find out more about who we are, visit lifegate.org.au. Thank you, brother. It is wonderful to be here, as always. As always. All right, let's dive in. So, at the start of the year, I like to start out my year, January, first week, first couple of weeks around that, that time of year, by watching as much cricket as I can. Uh, it's a great time of year to just sort of kick back, not do a whole lot, stay inside because it's too hot outside anyway. Uh, and with the test cricket on especially, you can fill up whole days just on the lounge watching some sport. Love it. And so at the end of the day, I'm not feeling particularly motivated to go and do a whole lot more. And so it's one time a year where I might actually sort of just flick the channels, look for what else can I move on to, what else is on TV at the moment. And this year, randomly, the thing that I ended up on was this show. Has anyone seen this show before? Anyone familiar with it? Arms Brush with Fame. This show presents a unique take on performing interviews with celebrities or otherwise famous people. And it's unique because while Arn is asking his questions and performing the interview, he's also painting a portrait of the person who he's asking the questions of. Um, I don't know, like, that guy just seems to have so many talents, it's a bit ridiculous. But anyway, that's what he does. And it's pretty good. Like, most of his artwork, if you've seen the show, is quite a good likeness to the person he's painting. Um, and so I thought about this whole thing a bit, and it got me asking the question, why are interviews with famous people so popular? You know, you see them on the news as well, actors promoting the latest movie get interviewed and these sort of other things. What, what is it about interviews that engages people so much? And then I thought, it's not even just about the TV aspect, because written interviews have been uh, hugely popular for years, um, and biographies and autobiographies are, have this whole genre of, of literature that people love to, to, you know, read and digest. Whatever the format, People love finding out more about their favorite actor or sports person, musician, entrepreneur, even politician and, and criminals sometimes. But you know what? It's more than just information. Interviews and these other formats allow people the potential chance to answer one question. I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder what they were thinking when they were fighting for that championship in that epic grand final match. I wonder what she was thinking as that tragedy unfolded around her. I wonder what he was thinking all those years that he held on to that secret. I wonder what they were thinking when they decided it would be a great idea to smuggle some sandpaper onto a cricket field to swing a certain match. Any cricket fans in the room this morning? I wonder what they were thinking. And then, as Easter rolled around, I started to ponder the Easter story and Jesus' life in general and this series of events that led up to the cross. I have this thing with the Easter and Christmas seasons especially um, in that I don't ever want them to just become a routine thing because by nature of how they appear on our calendar, they are a routine thing. Um, and, and that can bring with it familiarity and that can bring with it complacency and just a sameness from season to season you know, I've, I've, I've done this before, I've seen this before, I've heard this story before. And so I try to go into each season expecting that God will speak. 
expecting that the message is no less meaningful, no less powerful than it was last year or the year before, or in fact the first year that I heard it. And so this year, as I read the Easter story again, and as I heard it preached, I got this question stuck in my head. Jesus, what were you thinking? And as I dwelt on this, God led me to a series of passages, many of which that I was familiar with, God had spoken through to me before. And these passages kind of painted a picture, painted, uh, told a story um, to prepare the message for this morning. And so that's what I want to do this morning, is to take you through the passages that God led me to and just have a look at what Jesus was experiencing and maybe get some insight into what he was thinking at the time. So... We're going to dive into John 13 to begin with. Now, let me set the scene. Jesus and his disciples are at the Last Supper. Shortly after this, Jesus would be betrayed and arrested. It's the day before Jesus' crucifixion. And we read this from verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So it's, we're into the final 24 hours before Jesus' death. Jesus lowers himself to the level of a servant and begins to wash the feet of his disciples, not what you might have expected at this point. And then he goes on to give them some final teaching and, and, and prays for them in the, in the next few chapters. And it's at this point that John reminds us that Jesus knew that he had all the authority of God at his disposal. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, or in the NLT translation, Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything. In fact, John the Baptist makes a similar declaration of Jesus much earlier in his ministry, uh, back at the start of the book of John. Um, And there's almost this sense of that Jesus' whole ministry is covered by this statement that he had the authority of God himself. That was given to him by God. So this is our setup. This is our reminder from John for the final events of Jesus leading up to the cross, that Jesus had the authority of God. Now, maybe maybe Jesus sort of pulled aside John at the Last Supper and shared something with him around this. Maybe that was what prompted the reminder. Maybe they, they had this conversation that night. Whatever it was, Jesus had this awareness. So what was Jesus thinking? Well, Jesus knew this. He knew he had the authority of God. So therefore, from that, we can say that everything he chose to do in the coming hours, everything he did, he chose to do. Everything he allowed, he allowed intentionally. He could have chosen any future for himself, and yet he chose to go to the cross. And then as we move forward in the account... They finish the supper and they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. And in John chapter 18, we read this. 
When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So on that alone, I think we can say that Jesus was not trying to run from his future, was not trying to run from his destiny. Because if you're going to try and hide from your future, you probably shouldn't go to your normal hangout spot where you used to hang out with the guy who's coming to arrest you. Just saying, putting that out there. So I think Jesus knew what he was doing. So Jesus, having procured, sorry, Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So, if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So they're in the garden. Judas, with this small army of men, has come to arrest Jesus. And in verse 4, we read, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Or in the NLT, Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. Now, what do you make of this verse? To what extent do you think Jesus knew what was coming? What was he thinking? Well, if you flick over to Luke's Gospel, then we read that Jesus was in pretty extreme anguish when he was praying in the garden. Anguish to the point that he asked God if there was any other way for him apart from the cross. Anguish that led him to stress so great that he was sweating blood. So I would say that Jesus had a pretty vivid idea of what was coming for him. And we're actually going to look at that a little bit more later. But just on the basis of this passage alone, Jesus had an awareness of what was coming for him in the future. Can you imagine the weight that he must have been carrying at that point? He had the knowledge of God. He knew what was going to happen to him before it came about in, we assume, fairly graphic detail. Um, can you imagine what possibly could have been going through his mind? And yet there's no sense of hiding at all. He goes out to meet his captors as they come to find him. That's, that's incredible in and of itself. Phenomenal that, that Jesus in this intentionality goes out to meet these people. And then what we read next, I think, is fascinating. What, what happens in the rest of this account? When Judas and the soldiers find Jesus, they ask, are you Jesus of Nazareth? And we read in verse 5 that Jesus announces, I am he, and that the soldiers all fall to the ground. Now, what's going on here, you might ask? 
Well, in the original Greek, Jesus doesn't respond with, I am he. He simply responds, I am. The translators added the he at the end of that statement. Now, this is the same name by which God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 3, 14. I am. The name by which he wanted Israel to know him. So when Jesus says, I am, he's equating himself with God. There's no hiding it. It's clear. He's saying, I am God. And the men fall to the ground. Now, let me also point out that this was no small band of soldiers who had came, come to arrest Jesus. How many men do you think it would take to arrest Jesus? When, when, on, on your initial reading of this passage, what would you think? Five? Ten? Twenty? Maybe 50, if they were worried about the, the disciples um, backing him up, having a bit of a fight? Well, the original term used here for band of soldiers could refer to anywhere from 200 up to 600 men. Plus the temple officers were on top of that, and good old Judas. So at least 200 plus men, potentially many more, turn up to arrest Jesus. And the original text is also very clear that the men of the army fell to the ground. They were knocked over. It was as if a wave of power or something like that went out from Jesus. Now, every time I read this, because this is something that God revealed to me a couple of years ago when I was reading this passage, every time I read this, it reminds me of Mythbusters. How many people here have seen at least one episode of Mythbusters? I'm going to guess probably most people, because they've made so many seasons over the years, it's kind of hard not to have seen it in some ways. Um, so for those who don't know, um, Mythbusters, basically they're a bunch of scientists slash engineering guys who love to test ideas and say, is it true, is it false? And so they often will test um, movie myths, but they'll also, also test very like, household myths, old wives' tales, these sort of things, things that you might have wondered, is that really true? And they go and test it out often with as much explosive as they can pack into the episode. And so, one particular myth they test always comes to mind to me first. It's from one of the earlier seasons, and it's a common myth. I'm sure many of you will have wondered this one yourself before, and they were here to answer our questions. And the myth was this. Can you clean out the back of a cement-mixing truck with a stick of dynamite? You know, if, if you've let the truck sit a bit too long and all this extra cement has just caked onto the inside of the barrel, you know, like, that's going to be a pain to clean. So can you clean it out with a stick of dynamite? And so they, they get a truck somewhere in this condition, they put in some, a small amount of explosives, and lo and behold, once they set the explosive off, chunks of this concrete are just separating from the wall of the cement mixing truck. So it, it seems like this myth has some, some value. Um, but in true Mythbusters style, they decide to escalate things. They're like, how far can we go with this idea? So they then pose the question, what would happen if you fill the entire contents of the back of the truck with explosives? And they go and proceed to do just that. Um, and so I think, they, I think I read that they had to get the FBI to help them with this because it was like one of the early seasons. They're probably just wondering, who the heck are these guys? Get some sort of permission. And they set it, they find this big open space, and then they put the truck there and they blow it up. And the truck is vaporized, like, except for like, the wheel base like, down the bottom. Everything above is just, it's just gone. Um, and so you, know, you watch back the footage, this crazy explosion of fire and smoke. 
Um, but if you, if you watch, and, and they slow down the footage, if you watch and you see this better in later seasons when they have better cameras with explosions, um, with really good slow-mo tech. But a split second before you see the explosion, you kind of see this vibration of the air. You see this, this sort of shockwave go out from the actual truck before the main explosion takes place. It sort of just goes out and wipes sort of everything in the area. And so every time I read this passage, that's what I picture. That as Jesus declares, I am, this kind of shockwave of power goes out from Jesus, with Jesus being at the epicenter of that. And all these men, these strong army men, they're all just knocked to the ground. And so we have this account, and yet Jesus doesn't put up a fight. I mean, that could have just been the beginning. He could have called fire down upon them. He could have summoned a legion of angels to come to his defense. But instead, what we see is a Jesus who is restrained. We see power under control. Jesus reveals just enough of God's power to take away any doubt that he could have overcome them or escaped if he so chose to do. But having displayed this power, he allows himself to be taken away. Again, that is an incredible thing. And so begins the mistreatment of Jesus. And we can read about the many things that Jesus was subjected to to after he was taken away. He was beaten, mocked, blindfolded and slapped, whipped, spat upon, falsely accused and taunted, forced to wear a crown of thorns, repeatedly struck on the head, stripped and crucified naked in a public place. It's horrific to read about. And one of the passages that people often um, point to is actually all the prophecy that predicted exactly what then took place. Isaiah 53 is often quoted in regards to what Jesus experienced because the parallels are just so strikingly obvious between that and the Gospels. But you only have to go back a few verses to chapter 52 of Isaiah to read this. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. The NLT reads it this way. Many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured he seemed hardly human and from his appearance one would scarcely know he was a man. That is a heavy passage of text to read. And friends, when I read this, and I reread this, sometimes I think that for all we have heard about Jesus in the Easter story, we still don't quite grasp the incredible depth of what Jesus did for us. It really is just the most phenomenal thing. And I read this and I wonder, Jesus, did you know how bad it was going to be? And I have to assume he did, certainly at what we looked at earlier, that Jesus seemed to have this knowledge of God, that he got to reveal to him what what was coming. But the thing is, and this this was the most striking thing this time around, this is is where the penny really dropped for me this year, as I was rereading this stuff and God revealed this to me. 
Jesus grew up with these scriptures. He lived an entire lifetime having these Old Testament scriptures. So he knew what it said about him. He knew, or at least at some point during his childhood into adulthood, at some point he would have become aware that this was actually about him. That when he entered ministry, this was only a few years away. That when he entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, in one week's time, that was going to be him. That on the night of his betrayal, in less less than 24 hours, this was going to be his reality. Jesus, what were you thinking? How How does someone carry that kind of weight? You know, we often focus on the physical burden of what Jesus went through because it was so graphic, it was so extreme. And we focus on the spiritual burden that he carried for us. But I don't think we necessarily realize the mental burden that he would also have been carrying. We get glimpses, glimpses of it, like when we looked at um, the passage from Luke, I mentioned, with that anguish that we see in, in the garden. So there are glimpses of it, but I, I think we don't tend to see that as much as we see the rest of Jesus' um, struggles. But for him to carry this kind of weight willingly, intentionally, choosing to do so, to me, is just mind-blowing. And God regularly just blows my mind again every time I come back to these texts. So I guess the questions are, why did Jesus do it? And how, perhaps more to the point, how did he manage to carry this weight? Like, Jesus came to earth to live life as a human, fully God, but experiencing life as us, fully man. So, you might well ask yourself, well, how would I carry that burden? If, if that was written about me, how would I feel about carrying that weight? And then think about how Jesus must have felt carrying that weight. Incredible. And so, I want to take you to one more passage this morning, a happier passage, which sheds a bit more light on this. And this passage is Hebrews 12. Now, therefore... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. So then you would ask, what is that joy? It must be something pretty incredible that gave him that kind of endurance to get through that evening, get through that morning step by step. Well, I think it's a few things. I think it was the joy of obedience to the Father's will, knowing that he was completing his mission. Jesus held God the Father so highly, he just wanted to be obedient. He wanted to be faithful to his God, who had set him on this phenomenal mission, and he wanted to be true to that. And he was. I think there was joy in completing that mission. There was the joy of knowing that Satan's plan for the destruction of mankind were defeated. Friends, there was the joy of victory over death once for all time. And then there was you. 
there was the joy of opening a way for salvation for you. There was wiping your slate clean, the joy of doing that for us. There was the joy of making a way for you to know God the Father personally. There was the joy of knowing that your eternal future, your eternal life in heaven is secure in Him. Friends, what was Jesus thinking? Well, among all of these things, He was thinking that we are worth it. Humanity is worth it. We, in this room, are worth it. We are worth Him coming to earth, living this life, dying this horrible death to take the punishment for our sins, and then being risen, God bringing Him back from the grave to conquer death once for all time and extending that to us in Him. That was Jesus' joy. And it gave him this phenomenal endurance to go through this just series of events that we can barely grasp, we can barely wrap our minds around. But he did that for us. That is just the most, well, it's good news, isn't it? It's really, 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 really good news for us. So if you were a follower of Jesus this morning, then you might have a number of different responses to this message. You may have been struck in amazement again of just how much Christ has done for us. Maybe it's new levels of amazement. And I encourage you to spend some time in prayer just honoring Him, thanking Him, telling Him how grateful you are for all that He has done for us. You may be unhappy with certain parts of your life. You might be like, God deserves a bit better. I I know that I could be changing these things. I really want to stop those bad habits, whatever that might look like for you. Maybe that's something God's put his finger on before and you're still struggling with it. Well, if that's you this morning, then I encourage you to just come to God in honesty and confess it and ask him to help you to change. Ask him to to, do a work in you to help you live differently. You may be inspired to make some positive changes in your life on hearing this message. You might be just like, wow, God really is that incredible. You know, I just want to be praying more every week, every day, just acknowledging God in the moments of my day. I just want to be more intentional about that. Well, if it's anything like that too, again, just commit it to God and ask Him to help you. But maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet. Maybe this is your first time hearing the good news of what Jesus has done for you. Or maybe it's your first time you've felt ready to respond. Because this message is for everyone. Well, I'm going to lead you in a prayer this morning for those who want to commit their lives to Jesus for the first time. And I'd love for you to pray it with me. Are you ready, church? Pray after me. Dear God, thank you for sending Jesus. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again. God, I'm sorry for living my life my way instead of your way. Please forgive me. I accept you as Lord and Savior of my life. Please help me to live for you. From this day forward, amen. Friends, if you have prayed that for the first time, congratulations, you have just stepped into a phenomenal relationship with the creator of the universe himself, who is actually quite pleased to get to know you a bit more. So if you want to know more about what that looks like, uh, that relationship, being a Christian, 
um, then you know, speak to one of the pastors, speak to, to me after the service. We would love to have a chat with you and help you uh, on what that journey looks like. Um, now, the final thing we're going to do this morning is take communion. You know, it's hard not to, um, to, to hear a message like this and want to, to you know, honor God and, and remember Him and, and um, yeah, really acknowledge Him in, in whatever way we can. And, and one way you know, God asks us, of us is to celebrate communion with, with these symbols that represent you know, Jesus' blood, Jesus' body being broken for us. Um, and yes, yeah, so I encourage you this morning to take a moment, take a moment to reflect, take a moment to, to pray in whatever, whatever way you feel led by God this morning, uh, and then come and take communion in your own time. But I really encourage you, um, yeah, to, to spend some real time with God and just reflecting on this and saying, God, what, what do you want for me? What, what are you happy with in my life? What do you want to change? You know, because God can fill us with encouragement and God can also give us direction when we need it. Um, so I really, really encourage you to just spend some time, be it here or even at home, um, really reflect on the message of what, what God has done because it is the best thing that we can talk about. It's the best thing you can hear. It's the best thing that you can tell someone else. Um, yeah, it's incredible. So. Thanks for joining us on the LifeGate Church Podcast. Our church is a place to discover the freedom and purpose that Jesus offers.